Yeah, so as Andy said, um, I, I did spend uh, a good um, 15 years enrolled at Melbourne Uni, I think I worked out in the end, uh, which is a really long time. And the funny thing was, when I first enrolled at Melbourne Uni, they used to keep the same photo on your student card. So I just kept that 18-year-old kind of look, you know. So it was, a, it was actually 20 years ago that I was in first year uni here, which is really weird. Um, and Andy was my um, CU leader, who's like third year uni. He wasn't like on staff or anything. He was just like another art student. But I also knew him from my church. So we've, we, we go back a long way, as do Julianne and I, and uh, a few of you here from St Hilary's. Um, when I was at the Con, as we called it, it's still called the Con. Does people still call it the Con? There's been so many changes since I was here with the VCA and all, that, all the structural things. It's, um, it's hard to keep up. But when I was at the con, uh, you know, it was the most amazing time you know, at uni. It was just like all this promise ahead of us that um, you know, we were going, going to go on and be great musicians and we were surrounded by all these cool people. And, um, and because I was a, a viola player, hands up if you're a viola player, Okay, so, <laughs> bit of a, you, you really are? Yeah, actually. Oh, you forgot. <laughs> That's very viola playerish to do that, actually. <laughs> to be in denial, yeah. Um, I don't know if you know this, but um, viola players are the butt of jokes in orchestras. So I thought I'd start with a few jokes, viola jokes. Um, and uh, you might want to contribute if you feel like it. Um, so here's, here's a few classic viola jokes. Why do, why, why do violas stand on the outside of their house just aimlessly for a really long time? Why do they do that? Because they can't find the key and they don't know when to come in. <laughs> um, why, why is playing the viola like weeing your pants? Because both of you get a warm feeling but you don't hear anything. <laughs> why is a viola solo like a bomb? Because by the time you hear it, it's too late. <laughs> so, you know, you can, you can imagine... I'll just finish with this one. Why are violas so large? They aren't, actually. It's an optical illusion. It's that viola players' heads are so small. <laughs> yeah, so... I, because of these jokes that I've grown up with since I was six years old when I started playing the viola, I've developed this kind of robust personality, which is good when you become an Anglican minister because you still get the jokes, don't you? They're a bit more harsh though by then. People aren't actually joking. <laughs> um, anyway, so I, I went through and um, yeah, became a viola student, a performance, and was in a quartet. We were very serious for a while and I got involved with um, ministry and, uh, as well in my church, St James in Ivanhoe, um, and uh, just doing things as a volunteer with a bit of youth ministry and stuff like that. Outreach, and then um, I got a job at St Hilary's Q back in 2000, um, doing uh, youth outreach. It was called, and that led to one thing led to another, and eventually I was ordained, and I was there for a really long time. And uh, now I'm an Anglican minister, running a church uh, in Clifton Hill, a church plant that we started, Mary Creek Anglican. My PhD, if you're interested, um, is in the general area of ministry, broadly speaking. Uh, I looked at um, Aboriginal mission history. So if you're a historian, into Aboriginal history. I looked at a, um, a mission station that was set up in uh, Lake Tyres, which is in Victoria, East Gippsland. Talk to me about it later if you're interested. Anyway, I wanna, let's get into the theme of uh, today's talk, which is about connecting music and God together. For me as a musician, 
ever since I can remember, I, I've been, had this strong awareness that music points me to God. Um, there's been a few times when that's been really clear to me. So I'll give you an example. In 1991, before you were probably born, um, I was in year 10 and I was at Hamer Hall, or it was the concert hall back then it was called, and my favourite viola player, the greatest viola player in the world, Yuri Bashmet, performed. And um, he still is, many people consider the greatest in the world. And um, he was performing with his orchestra, the Moscow Soloists. And that was the first time I really locked in to a performance of music. And I felt like I was having a kind of a spiritual experience. Now, I don't know that it necessarily was a spiritual experience, but I felt like I was having that. I felt like I was just taken off into another world and it was just an amazing thing. I don't know, has anyone ever had that experience with music where they're just taken off into another universe? Anyone, yeah, a nod here and there? A nod there, Rob's had that. Yeah, I'll, do, I'll tell you another time when uh, this happened for me. This will make Andy jealous every time I tell this story. But in 1998, me and Andy's brother, Dave, we found a little ad in The Age saying that on a certain date coming up, Bob Dylan will be doing a very small performance in a small club as a warm-up for his tour. There were only 800 tickets available, uh, standing room only, basically like in a room not much bigger than this, right? Uh, you had to line up at the Crown Casino and uh, you could get tickets. So me and Dave and his brother did that and we got a ticket each to see Bob Dylan and we were literally like this bloke. Say that guy's Bob, like this. <laughs> in 1998, Bob didn't have his arthritis and he could sing still, you know. So, and and it, that it did right. <laughs> and that, yeah, you could, yeah, that was just like again another one of those musical experiences where it felt like we were taken off, and, and everyone there was blown away. Um, this happened several times. I went to the Radiohead OK Computer tour, and the same thing happened. Uh, the U2 Vertigo tour in 2006. I'm not such a big fan of U2, but man, those guys can put on a show. And uh, Bruce Springsteen this year. Um, but even as a musician myself performing, there were a couple of times when I felt like we were just all going with it together. You know, it was like um, there's something happens. I, I just recently saw the Nick Cave documentary, 20,000 Days on Earth. Anyone seen that? No. Okay. Anyway, it's at the Nova. Uh, and he talks about that in that film about how sometimes he says when you perform, it's like you're just taken off into this other world and, and the audience goes with you. Um, it can happen with other forms of art. So I remember seeing Van Gogh's um, uh, sunflowers in the uh, Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam and just walking up the stairs and walking and then there was the real one, you know, not a poster, but the real one and it's completely different to what you see on a dodgy print in Kmart. You know, it's nothing like the same thing. Um, the Sagrada de Familia, does anyone know what that is? There you go. Yes. So it's a famous cathedral in Barcelona by Gaudi. They've been building it for about 100 years. Um, it's still not finished yet. Again, this amazing architecture. The Chrysler Building in New York City is one of the most famous skyscrapers in the world. You know, it, they're, they're these works of art that just point us to somewhere transcendent. And um, I, I think that what it's doing is it's pointing us to God. I think I, there's a sense in which somehow we can almost sort of make out this picture of God through art. Um, it's quite a, quite a powerful thing. Now, you might think <clears throat> that the kind of direction I'm taking this talk in is a bit weird. You might think, what's this guy on about? He's got nothing to do with the Bible. I'll just, I'll just give myself a bit of um, backup that it's not just my idea. 
Um, one of the most famous theologians of the 20th century, Karl Barth, uh, he was obsessed with Mozart. And he said this, In the case of Mozart, we must certainly assume that the dear Lord had a special direct contact with him. Now, just because Bart said that doesn't mean it's true. But that's what he thinks, right? That's what he, that the perception that he had. At least that's the, you know, the vibe that Mozart gives off. Um, and his music, he said, evidently comes from on high. There's an inspiration in Mozart that is, that is so amazing. Now, I've played Mozart, and that's true. There's a, in the sense that he can do things that nobody else can do as a composer. And he was often doing it like the age of 12. What's going on with this guy? What happened? The lightning just struck on him. And he was able to compose. Incredible. And in fact, Karl Barth in his writing on Mozart, typical Karl Barth style, he leaves the, the suggestion open that Mozart might have been an angel. He wasn't. But he <laughs> doesn't. Barth says, Mozart can express in his music heaven and earth, uh, heaven and earth, yeah, nature and man, comedy and tragedy, the Virgin Mary and the demons. Mozart simply contains and includes all this within his perfect... Um, harmony. And he says, Mozart's harmony is a glorious upsetting of the balance, a turning in which the light rises and the shadows fall, in which the yes rings louder than the ever-present no. Even, even if you leave God aside to it, um, the person who is conducting on the screen, can anyone tell me who that is? Well you get a prize? <laughs> <laughs> Leonard Bernstein. Uh, that's my CD, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I had a whole lot of boxes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's true. That's Leonard Bernstein. He said this, um, leaving God out of it. He just said, music can name the unnameable and communicate the unknowable. Which is why we're drawn to it. Why, why we go to music festivals. Why, why we just let go when we're, when, when we're at a big rock show. Um, so what I'm going to argue today is this basic argument. Not a basic argument, but this is the argument. There is a parallel between the basic structure found in Western music and the Bible. This is not a coincidence that points us to the God image in humanity. I'll just let that sit there for a bit. Alright, that's what we're arguing. When I was at the con, we used to have to do this subject because the dean who was Warren Bebbington, who I think is still around at Melbourne Uni. I think he might be like the deputy vice-chancellor or something. But he studied in America at New York University. And the American music schools are quite different to the European ones. And in America, they're really into different stuff. One of the things they're into is a thing called Shankarian analysis. Do they still do that? Shankarian? Okay, so Shankarian analysis um, is basically this theory that Shankar had, and you can imagine what the nickname was for him, um, he, he basically said that there is a kind of a, a, a universal structure in Western music that can be observed and analysed. And when you, can, when you do that, observe that universal structure and draw that out, whether it's a symphony or a sonata or a melody, uh, that helps you to understand what the composer's doing. It's a way of defining tonality in music. Um, and, and, he, and he shows the hierarchy of the notes in a symphony, so he might say, here's the beginning, here's the high point, and here's the conclusion, and then he unfolds it from there. Um, and he talks about this idea called the fundamental structure, um, 
which if you're a musician you can read, that's what the fundamental structure looks like. I'm not going to explain it because it was one of my worst subjects at uni and it, it even makes me feel nervous talking about it in public. <laughs> but um, <clears throat> the idea is he's saying that there is this kind of very basic structure of music that kind of looks like that. It doesn't matter if you don't understand what the notes say, it's not important. But I'm just showing you that there's kind of this thinking going on in music theory. Um, and what he's trying to do is not sort of be reductionistic and say all music has to look the same, but he's trying to show a kind of a basic principle and show maybe contrasts to that. Some symphonies might look vaguely similar to that or radically different, but either way you can start to kind of group things and, 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 uh, and form basic um, principles about uh, the universality of this kind of structure across all Western music. Now, I'll move on from that because it's technical and not that important to the overall argument. But what I'm going to say is that I'm going to show is how in Western music there's a basic musical structure. But you, you would know, if you know any music, you will know this basic musical structure. It kind of, kind of looks like this. Introduction, theme, development, tension and resolution. Now, um, let's, is anyone's birthday today? Or recently? Surely somebody's birthday was recently. <laughs> Two weeks ago. Yours? Yeah. What's your name? Marty. Marty. Let's sing happy birthday to Marty. <laughs> Alright, here we go. Um, and I'm going to yell out in the middle of happy birthday. Okay, so ready? Who's, give us a note, someone. Uh, uh, melody. Uh, introduction and theme. Happy birthday to you. Development. Happy birthday to you. Oh, that's amazing. Happy birthday, dear Marty. Happy birthday to you. Release. Okay. Now, if I had just gone, happy birth, um, happy birthday, dear Marty. Happy birthday to. See ya. <laughs> you would have gone insane. <laughs> so, now, that's a very basic example of that at work, all right? Now, here's a more amazing example of um, a piano player, one of the greatest piano players of the 20th century, Glenn Gould, playing uh, the aria from the Goldberg Variations, which is not by Goldberg, but by... Who? No. Okay, Bach. Okay.
resolution. Okay, so that's a very famous piece of music, and if you were to analyse it, which millions of people have done, you'd see there's genius inside of that. And what Bach does is he develops that over about 35 uh, movements, that melody, and he turns it upside down and he puts it backwards and forwards and he, and he overlays it on itself and, and it's incredible. Um, look it up, Glenn Gould. Um, that's a very um, kind of simple example of great classical music doing that arc that I was talking about. But we can also show it in pop music. Uh, we won't listen to all of this, but Beach Boys are a genius, technically complicated band disguised as surfies. If you've ever played in a band and tried to play a Beach Boys song by ear, very difficult. Because they just keep moving and changing and the time moves and the harmonies move. But basically they're following that same arc. Same concept. Alright, we won't go all the way through that song. But this is from the, 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 the opening track from the album. That's it. Well done, Anne. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, arguably, the whole album follows this arc as well. Because it's a concept album. It's kind of a basic concept album. Uh, where all the songs are supposed to be heard together for about 40 minutes and you get this similar kind of arc. It's not as obvious though as it is in this album, Dark Side of the Moon, one of the highest selling albums of all time by Pink Floyd. Hands up if you've ever heard of Pink Floyd. <laughs> Phew. Okay, so this album starts with um, a track uh, of uh, this sound, you'll hear it coming through, fading in. So this is more obviously the introduction and the theme developing. The themes in the music, but it's also in the concepts. It's kind of the concept of the struggle of life, but it's actually the struggle of being on tour, I think, is what they're talking about. Um, and it's just the madness of life and the things that drive you insane. And this, this song develops like this and then breaks out into another song. And it's all kind of sounds. And you can see where a lot of bands get their influence from, especially Radiohead. And this is how it ends. This is the big conclusion, 40 minutes later, all right? Same kind of idea, tension and resolution at the end, okay? Um, I can't summarise Dark Side of the Moon now, but go and listen to it. So, here's the basic musical structure. What you have is this big arc that you might get in an album like Dark Side of the Moon or Pet Sounds, or like a symphony, or like the Goldberg Variations, or like an opera. But even with inside that, you have other musical, um, that, that mu same musical structure duplicated. So you can see in the green, like you have, you might have movements or songs which do the same thing. And then even the blue is like little melodies inside of that. And that's basically what Western music does. Um, <clears throat> now, this is important. This is kind of me setting up um, our argument for the, next, the second half of my talk. But does anyone have any questions at this point before we change direction? So obviously, Eastern music is quite a opposite. 
It may be still true for Eastern music, but I just have no idea. So I'm not going to try and overclaim. But it seems to be the case in Western music. I'm, I'm pretty sure that you would see something similar. But it just seems more obvious in, in Western music. This is an out there idea. This is fun. This is called a thought experiment, right? You're not going to find this in the value library. Or you might, but it would be amazing if you did. This is, this is me playing around with ideas that other people have played around with, like, like Karl Barth and others like that. There are, there's a whole kind of stream of people thinking about the Bible and theology and music. So, so I'm not totally off the page, but, you know, it's fun. But it's going to... You'll see where we're going. Okay, so th this is our argument so far. Um, this is the basic musical structure we see in Western music. Now, let's change direction and talk about the basic Bible structure, all right, which looks similar. Some people wrongly get confused with the Bible because they think it's a whole lot of books or a whole lot of stories that are disconnected that are just there to tell you um, a whole lot of moral information, you know, like how to live any kind of rules and, and all that kind of thing. And not as many people see the overall theme of the whole Bible. Um, it, it's like people are seeing music and they're only seeing the individual bars. It's like they're saying, um, you know, uh, playing Chopin is good just to improve your technique. No, you're not hearing it, you're not seeing it for what it really is. The Bible is actually a big kind of symphony in that respect. We're going to use the music language. And what it tells us, and here's, here's the melody here, the basic melody of the Bible is this. How the human race got into its present condition and how God through Jesus Christ has come and will put things right. Um, this is the main melody and it's introduced at the very beginning. It goes all the way over to the end of Revelation. But as I'll show you, it gets repeated lots of times as well. Now, I think this is amazing. This is what I'm going to call God's divine melody. All right? And I, where we're going is we're going to link the two, the first half of my talk and the second half of my talk together, hopefully. Um, so the basic melody of the Bible can be found in a whole lot of Bible verses. Here's one, which is famous for everyone. John 3.16 basically is one example of this overarching theme told to us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You've probably heard of this verse. There are actually lots and lots of times where the melody gets played over and over again in lots of different variations, like the Goldberg variations. So here's a whole lot of examples. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll yell them out to you quickly. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. There's a different version of the melody. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here's another version of the melody. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Here's another version of the melody. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Another one. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Here's another one. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sins against them. Here's another one. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Here's another one. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel. Here's another one. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Here's another one. 
He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Here's another one. He, uh, Christ died for our sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Here's another one. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now, you might not understand what all of that meant, but basically the same melody over and over again said it played in different ways. Um, but I don't want you to think that the Bible, as I said earlier, is a series of disconnected or linked statements over and over again. No, there's art to it. There's structure repeated over and over again. So I want to show you this, zoom back a bit, and see this basic Bible structure, which I've argued is in Western music, in actual themes, in the overall theme of the Bible, first of all. So let's look at that. So let's, let's imagine the orange line is the whole Bible. Um, you can start at the beginning of the introduction and you can see God blessing the world and creating the world and blessing humanity as he creates humanity, the pinnacle of his creation. He sets humanity in um, paradise. Um, and so what are we finding out? We're finding out humanity's present condition. How do we get to be where we are? That's, that's all established in the introduction of the theme of the Bible. Um, Adam and Eve, who enjoy the paradise for a short time and then turn their back on God. If you've read the story, you'll know that. If you haven't, look up Genesis chapter 1 to 3. You can read that story in the Bible. Um, God can't allow for the sin to go unpunished, so he punishes them and sends them out of paradise. Um, and then, from then on, relationships are hard, work is hard, the environment is fierce, the environment is decaying. There's a loss of innocence. But God doesn't leave them on their own. He acts graciously, gives them clothes to wear. They still can pray to him, but they don't really have any kind of... There's a, there's a, a lack of trust now between God and his people, and they now have to work on their relationship with God before they have direct access to him in a way that would be amazing for us to experience. This is the consequence of a self-focused life, baby. Now, God, this theme is developed all through the whole Bible where God reaches out and, and, and talks to, to his people through the prophets and promises a saviour and, and, and talks about you know, a day when a saviour is going to come. And uh, we see over and over again this kind of theme of God, people rebelling or getting into trouble, God graciously acting to save them and then being saved, that kind of tension of resolution. And that goes up is over and over and over again. And it kind of builds until it gets to the third movement of four movements, you could say, of the symphony of the Bible, where Jesus emerges. Um, so that's still a part of the development, I, I would argue, in the whole Bible, where you know what God promised would happen happens. Jesus emerges, emerges, sets up a new regime, preaches his, his message to the world, sets up a you know, team of disciples but then dies on the cross, which looks like the tension and resolution. But I, I don't know that that is the tension and resolution. He dies on the cross, <clears throat> rises again three days later. It's a mini tension and resolution, leading to another tension, which is the church being set up, where a whole lot of people are going out telling people about Jesus, and they get some, they get a lot of the benefits of, of, of a relationship with Jesus, but still the, the, the struggle of living in the world, um, which is the tension. The Bible talks about being like a pregnant woman. I'm about to give birth, the kind of groaning pains, that's the tension. And then the Bible resolves all of that in the book of Revelation with um, Jesus returning 
and ending all of Haiti's suffering and uh, bringing his people into a new creation where they get to enjoy him forever. So that's the kind of big theme through the whole Bible. Um, I, you could call that like the divine melody of God kind of reaching out and rescuing people through Jesus. Um, it's because of what Jesus did in uh, dying and rising again that um, that resolution could occur. Now, that's kind of the big, clunky, overarching kind of rush through the Bible that I've just done. But you see lots of mini versions of this. Um, let's skip through this. I've just told you this. Okay. I want to give you two smaller examples of Moses and then Peter, just to show you how the melody does play itself out um, in two different ways. Uh, well, lots of different ways, but here's two examples. So you've got the example of Moses. So the, through a whole lot of series of events, the Israelites find themselves living in Egypt and being slaves to the Egyptians. And um, they have this kind of problem where they're, they're kind of oppressed and they're perse- persecuted um, but God, through his grace and love, um, reaches out to them, provides a saviour figure, who's Moses, and Moses comes, talks to Pharaoh, and uh, says, God's saying, you've got to let the Israelites go. And uh, Pharaoh says no. And there's a whole lot of plagues that God sends to Pharaoh to show him who's boss. Uh, and then eventually, um, by the tenth plague, Pharaoh has to let them go. And Moses leads the Israelites away from e- Egypt, right? So that you've kind of got the development theme now. Um, and, and the people are free. Are they free? Maybe they're free. And uh, then Pharaoh's army chases after them. And then they get to the Red Sea and it looks like they're about to all get killed at the Red Sea. That's the tension. But then God parts the Red Sea and they go through to the other side. There's the release. There's a small example. Now you could zoom back even further from the Moses story and see that actually the Israelites keep going for 40 years through the desert towards the promised land, which is the release again. But there's lots of tension along the way, isn't there? There's development and tension along the way. The law is given, uh, and the Israelites experience lots of um, um, God's blessing, but also their rebellion against God. That's the development of this theme along the way. And then you get to the end, and they eventually get to the promised land. There's another version of the melody. I'll jump to the New Testament and look at the person of uh, the Apostle Peter. You've got um, Peter, who is uh, a fisherman, and uh, he's just living his life. Um, And then Jesus invites him to be his disciple. So there's the introduction and the theme. Peter follows around Jesus, learns a whole lot of stuff. There's the development. But he's just a human being, and he messes up. And as we know, when Jesus is being arrested and put on the cross, Peter uh, denies knowing Jesus three times. And so then Jesus dies on the cross and you have this tension. What's happening to Peter? Peter's life is now messed up, right? Can you imagine what's going through his head? I've just betrayed my Lord. Um, You know, I'm a failure of the disciple of Jesus. But then Jesus rises from the dead three days later on Easter Day And we have this story in uh, John chapter 21 where Jesus appears to his disciples on the beach and he goes up to Peter, his apostle who betrayed him, and says, "Um, do you love me, Peter? 
And Peter, Peter says, yeah, yes, you know I love you, Lord. Um, and Jesus says, well, feed my sheep. And then he says again, uh, Peter, do you love me? A second time. And he says, yes, you know I love you. Feed my lambs. And then the third time he says, Peter, do you love me? Just to put the finger in a bit, bit more. And he says, yes, you know I love you. But then what Jesus does is he kind of, he, he, he restores Peter and he says, and he sends him out to basically be the leader of the church and to establish the church. And so there you have, in that moment, the resolution in Peter's own life. It's like God's divine melody has been sung in his life. There's been that whole arc experience in his, his life. Um, there it is in one person. So you have it on the grand scale, the meta scale in the Bible. You have it in the Old Testament, across the whole Old Testament. You have it in the whole New Testament. You have it in each book. And then you even have it in the stories and even in the individual lives of people with, through whom God sings his divine melody. And what I would argue is that the reason why Christians are so excited about their faith is because we've experienced God's divine melody in our lives. We've experienced the same arc that Peter has experienced in it or in a similar, in that we've experienced um, God singing his melody into our life changing us, developing us and restoring us. And so we get so excited we want to sing that melody to other people. Um, now, that's basically how whether it's with Moses or Peter the human race got into its present condition and how God through Jesus Christ has come and will put things right. This is the symphony, God's divine symphony. You can see it in Moses how the human race, the Israelites, got into its condition and how God comes and puts things right through a Christ-like figure, Moses. Or with Peter, how the Apostle Peter got into his condition and how God, through Jesus Christ, came and put things right in him. Now, to tie the first half and the second half of my talks together, what I'm saying is this. I'm suggesting that this melody is echoing uh, something in our hearts. This, this melody is echoing across the universe and as artists and composers write their music or painters paint their pictures, authors write their books, what they're trying to do is connect with this divine melody somehow. This means, amongst other things, you know, because we're, we're, we are God's creatures, we want to be creative like him, we want to do the kind of creating that he does. But God is the ultimate artist. What we're doing is we're reaching for him, we're reaching for his melody. And it's not just musicians, it's, it's filmmakers. You see it in film all the time, this arc. You see it in um, books that you read. But see, it doesn't matter how good a musician or an author or a composer or what engineer, website designer you are, there is no substitute for God's divine melody. Perhaps the greatest composer of all time, um, one of them is Bach. Um, when he was 48 years old, he, he got a copy of Luther's um, translation uh, of the Bible into German and he poured over this book as if it was you know, um, his prized treasure and he went through and highlighted all these times when musicians appeared in the Bible um, and verses that stood out and he, and he wrote commentary all over the Bible and you can actually see this Bible today. And... Um, he, he, he saw that God wanted him to create music as a way of expressing his faith 
and um, he, he had this sense that God was present with him as he, um, as he wrote his music. And even to this day, you can see on, on the original manuscripts of Bach's music, he wrote um, Soli Deo Gloria, which is um, to, for gl- glory to God alone. He devoted all his music to God. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter uh, how great an artist you are, there's no substitute for the actual divine melody. What I want to do is finish now um, with um, one of my favourite pieces of music, which I want played at my funeral, for the required symphony orchestra and a, and a soprano. Um, <laughs> so perhaps it'll just be played off, off the iPhone, um, or whatever it is, by the time I die. Um, and it's from Richard Strauss's Four Last Songs. And, you know, uh, when I was in my young years and playing in an orchestra, I had an experience of playing the four last songs in a cathedral in Austria. And uh, it was just another one of those divine experiences being carried away. And this is called At Sunset. So it's the last of the four movements. And I'm going to read out to you the English and then read to you the fourth movement, a bit from the fourth movement of the Bible as well. translation of what you'll hear. We have through sorrow and joy gone hand in hand. From our wanderings, let's now rest in this quiet land. Around us, the valleys bow as the sun goes down. Two larks soar upwards, dreamily into the light air. Come close and let them fly. Soon it will be time for sleep. Let's not lose our way in this solitude. O vast, tranquil peace, so deep in the evening's glow, how weary we are of wondering. Is this perhaps death? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. 
There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. brings us to the end of our talk. So thank you.